Hey there, my name is Roy and I am the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly and we're so glad that you've joined us today for our, for our, our sermon today, part three of Seven Signs and for worship. Well, a number of years ago, a pastor recalled a story and it was a wintry Sunday morning and the pastor got up to head off to church and as he walked out the front door, he had underestimated how much it was going to snow the night before and he discovered that he was going to have to clean off his car and shovel his way out of his driveway. And it's the only way he's going to be able to get to church. So as he's driving towards church, he gets to the end of his street and he realizes because of the snow, all of the roads in his town are blocked. There's no way he's going to be able to get to church. So he heads back to his house and he comes up with an idea. He decides the only way I'm going to get there is he grabs a pair of ice skates out of his garage. And there's a river that goes right along the road right to the church. And he skates his way all the way to the church, exhausted by the time he gets there. Well, when he gets there, the elders of the church are horrified that their pastor has skated on the Lord's day. And as the pastor preaches his message, he could sense the anger in the room that he had violated the Sabbath. After the service, the church board called an emergency meeting with the pastor. They're going to get to the bottom of it. The pastor explained to them, listen, it was either skate to church or not go to church at all. After some thought, one of the elders spoke up and said, well, did you enjoy it? No, answered the pastor. The board decided it was okay then, and they dismissed the meeting. Now, it sounds ridiculous, and I know some of you were thinking that's I was setting up a joke, but it's actually a real true story that happened to a pastor. We call this in the church legalism. Legalism is where you hold on to a hard and fast, often man-made rule, and you completely ignore the purpose, or more importantly, the people that the rule was made for. It's where you prioritize the rule over the person. I've seen this firsthand. I've seen when I was a youth pastor, I've seen a young man who has no church background whatsoever, but he's so hungry to know the things of God. He's so hungry to discover more and more about Jesus that he decides he's going to start showing up to church on Sunday. He's never been to a Sunday service in his life. And so he comes and he sits right up front because that's where hungry people sit. And he sits up front and he's just taking in everything. At the back is an older lady, and she's been a churchgoer for her entire life. And after service, she's, she, you find her in the fellowship hall, and she's complaining to anyone who will listen about this young man sitting up front, how dare he wear a baseball hat to church. And her argument is that you should bring your best into the house of the Lord. And she's worked up, but it seems to me that a God that judges your heart over your outside appearance would see this attitude and hunger of the young man much more in line with bringing his best than he would the sharper-dressed critical spirit of the older woman. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that time and time again, it's the people that completely lose sight of the, their compassion and love in order to prioritize a law or a rule. That's the thing that Jesus was bothered by the most. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're in part three of our series, Seven Signs. And in this series, we've been working through the Gospel of John. John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, his eyes had seen a lot as far as Jesus' ministry was concerned. And close to the end of John's life, he decides he's going to sit down and document his experience for you and for me and for others in the future in mind. Because John saw seven signs in his mind that weren't just random acts of kindness, not random miracles, but they were signs that pointed to the identity of who Jesus was, the living, breathing Son of God. 
And based on these signs, based on the things that John saw and John experienced, John came to faith in Jesus. And he wants you to know, and he wants, he wants me to know, that he didn't put his faith in faith. He put his faith in the evidence that was presented in front of him, and it was so compelling that he wants you to, to, to consider his testimony when, he, when it comes to where you put your faith. In 1 John 1, 1 says this, we were, we, this is John talking, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen, we saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. He's saying, listen, you need to know this is a firsthand account. I saw him with my own eyes. I, I saw the miracles. I saw the healing. I saw the unexplainable. And I touched him. These, these ears, they've heard things like I'd never heard before. Teachings like I'd never heard before. And truthfully, sometimes I didn't even understand what Jesus was talking about. And sometimes I actually just nodded along as if I did. But it wouldn't be until years later that I actually discovered what he was actually talking about. And I want you to know that this is not tradition. This is not fable. This is my testimony of what I saw. And so John finishes the last verse in his gospel with this. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. He's like... This is what I experienced. I want this for you. And John would say to you, and John would say to me, I wrote these things down, not just so what you would know what happened, but you would know why it happened. So John comes to this conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. It changed the course of his life. And although you're getting the evidence secondhand, John's desire is that he would write his gospel in such a compelling way that you would come to the same conclusion that he did that Jesus is the Messiah. So John writes about seven signs that helped him come to his conclusion. And we've already looked at the first two. Today, we're going to look at sign number three. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter five. That's where we're going to be for the rest of the time. And if you turn to John chapter five, what you might see is a heading that says either the healing of the lame man, maybe it says the healing at the pool. But last week we saw that Jesus is in Cana and a government official whose son is dying comes rushing up to Jesus. He tracks all the way from Capernaum to, to beg Jesus to come and heal his son. And instead of Jesus coming and healing his son, Jesus turns to him and says, Go home, your son is healed. And so this man puts his trust in Jesus without any physical evidence. He turns, he goes home, and he finds out that not only is his son alive, but Jesus is who Jesus said he was and, more, and also who other people said Jesus was. Well, now we find that Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem, which last week we mentioned any time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's at risk. Because the religious leaders had a system set up, a hierarchy of sorts, where they had it set up that it was very beneficial to keep things in line the way they were, to keep people in line the way they were. And so they didn't want anybody rocking the boat, which is exactly what Jesus did every time he came to Jerusalem. So often when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, he had a target on his back. So we start our story, John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, the question is, if you've been paying attention, how did Jesus go up to Jerusalem when he came south from Galilee? Why would it say that? Well, it's easy. Even though Jerusalem was a 100-kilometer trek from, from up here in Galilee to down here in Jerusalem is 100 kilometers, a four-day walk, 
The reason that John, John says Jesus went up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was built on a hill. In fact, the last 16 kilometers of that trek, of that 100-kilometer trek, would be all uphill. The 3,000 feet is what they would climb from that starting point to that finish point over that last 16 kilometers. So yeah, it was, it was, they went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, now there, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. See, the ancient world was not dealing with what we have right now. Now we have all kinds of medical treatments. We have all kinds of medication. We have specialized hospitals for different diseases. And we raise millions and millions of dollars dedicated for medical research. Now, medical research in Jesus' day was much, much different. There weren't a lot of doctors. In Jesus' day, there were no autopsies. Rome had a law that you could not examine a dead body. And the Jews also considered anyone that touched a dead body unclean, plus they forbid the mutilation of any dead body. So if you were a doctor, the only autopsy that you could actually perform was on a live body that was almost dead. So a lot of times when someone was, all, was on their last legs, they were dying, a doctor would come rushing to your side, but that doctor may or may not be there to, to help you. He may, or may, he may be there just to... Uh, just to do some medical research on you before you passed away. Imagine how scary that would be. Like, oh, good, doctor, you're here. Hey, wait, what are you doing? So with, without any ample research, many of these sicknesses and these deformities were, were just left untreated. Not only that, but there were not a lot of doctors. And so as you can imagine, the ones that, the doctors that were available were available to the rich. And so if you were lower class or you're middle class, you put your hope in two things. The temple or superstition? Maybe, maybe the gods, if you, in whatever temple you went to and whatever gods you believed in, maybe they would have mercy on you. That was your thought. Or the other option was superstition. And for the man that we're going to be looking at in today's story, that's where his hope lies, in superstition. The pool of Bethesda was the bathing pool that legend had it that every once in a while an angel would come down, stir the water, and, when, and once that water stirred, the first person that hopped into that pool would be healed. And so people would be laying all around that, and that was where their hope lies. Well, years later, archaeologists discovered that the, this pool, after they excavated it, there was this, it was fed by a reservoir of water. And underneath that pool, when they excavated, they discovered a natural spring. So what would likely happen is the spring would bubble up every once in a while. And when they did, they thought that was the angel and chaos would ensue. Now picture the scene. Around the pool, there's blind, crippled, paralyzed. And here they lay day after day, all their hope placed in this superstition because they'd been cast out from society. And Jesus walks through this area. That's where we find him on this day. He's walking through this area. It's not an area that regular people would be going to. It likely smells. People have been laying there sometimes for days, and it's, it's just not a great place to be. And, and likely government officials at some point would probably, someone probably on low on the totem pole would have to walk through there and check for dead bodies because either no one had noticed or they, they just, it's, it was hard to determine between the others. And it was just a destination, a destination that you just didn't want to be in. That was unless you had no hope. And your hope was in an angel in a pool. Verse 5, one of the men laying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? I imagine that after asking about this man, 
I, I imagine that Jesus bends down, and I imagine he likely whispers, why? Well, imagine this. You're standing amongst a whole bunch of people that are ill and a whole bunch of people that have all their hope in getting better. You would, for you to stand up and loudly declare, would you like to get well, would create way more chaos than that pool. So he whispers to this man, do you want to get well? Which seems like a weird question, but sometimes getting well is tougher than staying broken. For example, as many of you know, or, or perhaps you don't know, for my wife, Jen, about 15 years ago, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And basically what, that, what they discovered is the white blood cells in your body, that you, the function of those white blood cells is to fight off infection. Well, there was confusion within Jen's white blood cells that her muscle and joints were actually infections. So it was like her body was attacking itself. And, and what that would cause is that the, uh, at the, it would cause pain, it would cause swelling, it would cause discomfort. Sometimes discomfort was the least of it. Sometimes it was, she was incapacitated for days. And, and at its worst, doctors warned her that within a year, there's a possibility you may be in a wheelchair. And so for years, she was working with specialists and taking medication just to be able to function. And seriously, she's one of the strongest people that I know. What she's been through would keep most people down. But if you've met her, you would never know the battle that she's faced. Because all the time, she just holds on firm to her joy. Well, in the past Past year after a series of tests, her doctors discovered that she has celiac, which in short means that she has a serious allergy to gluten. That any trace of gluten in, in whatever she eats can cause swelling and sub subsequently can cause pain, as well as not allowing any nutrients to absorb into her body, which of course has its own effects. When we, would, when we discovered the diagnosis, I discovered, I don't even know how she functioned day to day. She literally is my inspiration. Her doctors were so encouraged by the news, though, the diagnosis, but it came down to this. You can get very close to being well again, but you need to cut out all the gluten. Not just a bit, not just once in a while, not just once, always. And I don't know if you've ever tried cutting out gluten out of your diet. Because sometimes that's a fad, right? Sometimes people just do it for the better health benefits. But for Jen, it literally changes her day to day, whether she decides to abide or whether she doesn't. Gluten is in anything. You would be surprised at all the things that it's in. It's in anything with wheat or barley. It's in breads. It's in soup bases. It's in cereals, cookies, crackers, some chocolate, pasta, processed foods, hot dogs, sauces, and on and on and on. And while there are gluten alternatives, gluten-free foods, some of them are okay because I've tasted quite a bit of them, but, and some of them are just kind of unedible. She's had to make a major change. So the question that Jesus asked this man is similar to the question Jen's doctor asked her. Do you want to get better? Because getting better is harder. Being diligent about every ingredient in your diet, realizing that if we have to stop at a drive-thru because we're out on the road, 80% of the menu is probably off limits to you. It'd be easier just to give in and just eat what you want but stay unwell. But after months of changing her whole lifestyle, we just received a message literally just a few days ago from the specialist that's journeyed with her from the, for the last 12 years. And this is what she said in a text message. I have the results of your lab tests. They're the best results I have seen for you 
ever. So I firmly believe that by changing your diet and improving your celiac condition, that this has made your immune system better. Keep up the good work. Now, it's been hard because this has been the course of like the last nine months. The question that Jesus asks is, would you like to get well? Because maybe for you, it's dealing with an addiction. You said time and time again that this was it. This is the last time. I'm never doing this again. But the people around you suffer because of your addiction, and you suffer because of your addiction. And it's hard to break, but it's, and it's easier to stay unwell. Maybe it means you've had some trauma, and, and you need to seek out counseling. You know you have, or someone suggested it to you before. And you've bottled up your pain for years, and yet the idea of telling somebody about this seems even more painful than the pain itself. And so you know that it might help, but you keep telling yourself you're fine and you can handle it. Do you want to get well? Because the question is, if you have a path to wellness, don't you think maybe it pains your Father in heaven that you choose to stay broken? It pains the ones around you to see see that you choose to stay that way? Because even if the road to recovery is hard, it's worth it. So Jesus asked this man, do you want to get well? As it happens, this man has no idea who Jesus is, he, but he wants to get well. Verse 7, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets ahead of me. Of course, if you can't walk, unless you have someone to put you there. He's serious about this too. His hope lies in the ability to get into that pool when this random stirring of water occurs and he doesn't know when it's going to happen. And imagine the scene is wild. The commotion is people are trying desperately to throw themselves into the water or have somebody toss them in the water. And this man needs help to do so. And so he's hopeful that someone will help him. It's his only hope, except there's another. And Jesus whispers to him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. To which I'm, I wonder if this guy's thinking, okay, buddy, uh, sure, I'll get up and, I'll get up and walk. Maybe, do you want me to do a jig while I'm at it? Because he, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know the power of the words of this man. And so, He's probably thinking, well, you know what? I don't have any hope otherwise, so why don't I just try getting up? And verse 9 says, instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking. Instantly he was healed. Instantly he was better. And like I said a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, he's always in danger. He's always at risk because of the things he says, because of the things he does. And this time, he sent a message with this healing because verse 9 goes on to say that this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Now the Pharisees, who considered themselves the guardians of the law, the religious leaders, they paid extra attention to what was happening on the Sabbath. They're making sure no one would violate the Sabbath because it was supposed to remain holy and you were supposed to not do anything on the Sabbath. And all of a sudden they see this man walking around with this big goofy grin because he can walk for the first time in 38 years and he's carrying a mat. Verse 10 says, So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry this sleeping mat. Apparently, the law forbids carrying a mat. Except it didn't. God's commandments didn't forbid it, but their traditions did. Their, rule, their sub-rules forbid it. 
tradition stated that generations ago, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments, that he also came down with the written Torah, which was the Ten Commandments, but he also came down with the oral Torah, something that only Moses had in his head, these unwritten rules. And this oral Torah was passed down to Joshua, who was then passed to the judges and the prophets, and ultimately to the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees held these unwritten rules in the same regard with the same authority that they did God's commandments. And the unwritten man-made rules were so extensive that they were impossible to keep. In fact, they were a burden. Just on the Sabbath alone, there were 39 categories of rules. Not 39 rules, 39 categories of rules. And one of those rules in one of those categories said that you could not carry anything on the Sabbath from one place to another, even a mat. So to the Pharisees, this man was violating the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But this commandment was laid out at the time of Moses for the Israelites to be able to take a break from labor, not to take a break from love, not to take a break from compassion. And this is what happens to all religious people. This is what happens to religious, religious people from every religion when they or we forget the why behind the what. When you lose sight that God loved people so much that he sent his son for people, not the perfect people, not the squeaky clean people, he sent his son for the broken, for the, for the hurt, for the sinful people. Then he sent the commandments, and when he sent those commandments, he had his people in mind. He had the best for his people in mind. And then he sent his son, and he did so for the people. And so when your viewpoint, the theology that you hold in high regard is more important to you than people, you've lost your alignment with the heart of God. That's why someone can steer a plane into a building and claim it in the name of God. That's why someone can disown a member of their family because they don't believe the same things they do and claim it in the name of God. That's why you can see a young man desperately searching after God show up at a church and feel like he doesn't belong because he dares wear a hat or ripped jeans in a service. That's why someone can, can, that's why someone can see a man who's been healed on the Sabbath, an incredible thing to happen, and be upset because because they feel they are justified because it honors their God. When the law or the ideology or the theology or the political slant that you hold onto causes you to mistreat people and you feel like you're justified to do so because you have a verse that's taken completely out of context, you've forgotten the why and you've forgotten the people that God loves dearly. Verse 11. But he replied, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. And perhaps the smile on his face wanes for, for just a second. Because he's probably thinking, I thought you guys were going to be happy for me. In my head, as I made my way here to the temple, I thought you'd celebrate. Because you see, for years, I haven't been able to walk and I long to be back in the good graces of the temple to be accepted again. And I thought you were going to welcome me, but if you're telling me I have to choose between obeying the people that, that told me that I was crippled and, and that I was punished for some sort of sin in my family and that I didn't belong, or, or the alternative is obeying the man who saw me, who showed compassion and gave me what I didn't deserve, I got to tell you guys, I'm going with love. I'm going with grace. Because one of them lines up way more with what I've heard about God. Verse 13. 
The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, Now you are well, so stop sinning or, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So after he discovers who it was, that it was Jesus, the one they called the Son of God, it was Jesus that healed him. He goes to the Pharisees and he tells them, This is the man who healed me. You see, he's not afraid. He's not afraid. He's, made, he's been made well by Jesus and he's seen a glimpse of who God actually is. And John wants you to know that when you understand who God really is, what he's really like, you lose your fear of religious people. The ones that misuse scripture to violate your dignity and mistreat you, you lose the fear of them. So now the Pharisees know that the man that broke the Sabbath for carrying his mat was this man, but they also know that Jesus violated the Sabbath because he healed a man. You can't do anything medically on the Sabbath, according to their tradition. You can't do anything unless it's life or death. And when they look at this guy, he's been, in, he's been 38 years, he's been in this spot. They're thinking, you could have done this on Monday. You could have done that next Thursday. Why would you do this on the Sabbath? And so now Jesus is in their crosshairs. Verse 16. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, therefore, thereby making himself equal with God. And I imagine that John loves retelling this story. So, so he's, and I can imagine just sitting around with a bunch of people, and he's like, so, okay, get this. Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. I mean, I saw it, and I'm like, how dare you, right? <laughs> which, which, of course, makes the bigwigs at the temple, I mean, they're so mad. And instead of denying it or even apologizing to them for it, Jesus tells them that he is, that, that he is the son of God, that God's his father, and that he's in the family business of showing compassion no matter what day of the week it is. You should have seen their faces. And it's interesting that they were annoyed when they heard that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. They were more annoyed than they were curious about where the power to heal a man came from. But when he claimed to be the Son of God, their anger went from annoyed and it skipped a level and went to furious. Like, I'm going to kill you furious. And their anger came with a question. Their anger came with this question. Not what have you done, but who do you think you are. And John would, would ask you to wrestle with this question too. Who does he think he is? And is it true? Who does he think he is? And John would look back at this story and he would discover that Jesus could have healed anyone at that pool. I mean, there were so many people there that, that needed healing. And if he came there just to take care of the physical needs of every person, he's a bit of a failure. But he had bigger things in mind. He was far more concerned about our spiritual well-being than our physical. Did he randomly just heal one man in the middle of all those people? Did he perform some random act of kindness because he does one every day? No. It was a sign. A sign that pointed to who he was. Because if you've ever wondered what God is really like, there's many ways in which if you went out and asked people, well, how do you, where do you see God? How do you see God? How do you know God? We, people answer all the time, oh, I see God in nature. Or I see God in the eyes of another person. Or I see God when good overcomes extreme evil. And 
There are many, many ways in which we see and which we interpret God. And while many of these are good, and they often actually support and reassure us of the existence of a higher power, Jesus says this. Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus says, if you want to know what God's really like, watch me. If you want to, if you want to know what, what God would actually say in a situation, listen to me. If you want to do what the Father would do, follow me. And a little further down in verse 39, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. He says, you put your faith in scriptures, but you put your faith in laws. But when you're confused, because this happens, right? You hear, somebody, you hear somebody use scripture in a way and you're like, I'm not sure. that I, that's, I know it says that in the Bible, but this doesn't seem like it aligns with the heart of God. When you're confused and you're not sure how to interpret them, he says, watch me, listen to me, follow me. And if you're here today and you're listening today and you struggle with who God is, John would tell you the most important questions you need to answer are these. Who does he think he is? And more importantly, who do you think he is? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the person that's listening today and they're not sure. They've asked that question. They've asked the question of who, who is Jesus? And they've never come up with a, a complete answer of who that is. God, I pray that you would just put a hunger inside them to keep asking, keep pursuing. God, that uh, I, I believe with all my heart that you will reveal that to them. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that, uh, that in each of us, we would, we would, uh, we would come like, like, like the, uh, the, the lame man, the, the, that we would come before, before your throne just seeking you. We would come to you and we would accept your help, Lord. And God, I know for those that are listening, sometimes being, being ill is, is easier. That, sound, that sounds strange to say, but sometimes it's harder to get well. So I pray for those today that are struggling, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a marriage that's out there, God. Or someone needs help, they need counseling, they need some sort of help. I pray that you'd give them the bravery and the courage and the wisdom to be able to, to reach out, to lay their ego aside, to lay their pride to the, to the wayside and, and ask for help, God, because there's people out there that rely on them. There's people out there that, that care about them that want to see them get better. And ultimately, God, you want to see them get better. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we, would, we would listen to the words of John and that we would ask this question and that we would come to a place where where we can, we can answer this question wholeheartedly. Who are you, Jesus? And are you who you said you are? I ask this in your name, Father. Amen.